Okay, fine. Well, welcome to Righteous Remnant. Hi, everyone. I'm here with my co-host, Dennis Cole. How you doing, Dennis? What's up, Paul? I'm doing real good, man. That's good. Same here. Same here. I'm excited for this one. Yeah. We got a very, uh, I think it's a very uh, uh, tranquil and calm discussion we're about to have right now, especially on the topic of social justice. Yeah, for sure. That's going to be fun. Yeah. I'm always excited for this topic. Yeah. Especially, especially <laughs> on the... On the on the topic of race relations. Now, Dennis, yeah. I have to say that you're actually, uh, you've gotten a lot of flack from, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of our, our liberal friends when it comes to this topic. So I want to ask why, why yeah. are you getting attacked on this? I mean, if anybody looks at our reviews right now, we got about 3000 oh, reviews. Oh, we're up now, huh? <laughs> I don't know, man, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but it's some, somewhere up there, right? Yeah. And, and and really the focus is on um on, on a lot of about your talks on race mm-hmm. okay so um uh, this episode really is dedicated just to unpack all that uh, yeah. i want to hear your heart you're a very dear friend of mine and you are not racist all right i would not be friend with a racist so i i want to hear your heart i want to hear exactly where you're coming from so to start off why why are you getting a lot of attacks on this particular topic yeah it's a good it's a great question I actually think this. Um, I get I get more hate on this subject than any other subject, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I talk I talk a lot about it, about a lot of controversial issues, you know. But this one by far is the one that really offends and you know bothers people the most. And um, you know, that's that's because of the nature of the topic, not you know, not me. I mean, I I know lots of people um, that get hate on this for speaking out in this and. Uh, and obviously, the people that get it the worst of all are the black people that say along the lines of what I say, right? Mm-hmm. Everything that I say, I've actually learned from um, black intellectuals, right? Guys like Thomas Sowell, um, you know, Larry Elder, Jason Riley, Coleman Hughes, even like a lot of these, um, you know, African American intellectuals who who push back against the systemic racism narrative, um, they get a lot of hate, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because they're they're seen as like traitors, right? So, you know, for me to you know just re- basically repeat some of the stuff that they say and get hate for it, um, that's fine. You know, that's fine. I just think I think this issue really is at the heart of national division in America. This issue of race, right? And that's why um, there's a lot of pain on this issue. There's a lot of pain, um, and whenever there's a lot of pain. We kind of have to understand it from a both a, um, a a practical political perspective, but also from a spiritual perspective, right? From a spiritual perspective, the enemy exploits pain. That's what he wants to do. Because if he can get pain inside of your heart, what happens is you become open to believe all sorts of things that are not true. Does that make sense? Like yeah. lies get in your heart really from places of pain, you know, and for anyone who, you know, has done ministry for a while, you know, and done any sort of counseling or inner healing or anything like that, we know that, um, you know, when you boil down most issues that people have, if you get really to the root of it, you're going to find some pain that has been dealt with incorrectly, right? So usually some form of unforgiveness. And unforgiveness, if you've ever done deliverance ministry, unforgiveness is always at the root of um, a lot of the major issues that people struggle with, major fears, anxieties, jealousies, all sorts of stuff, right? 
And this issue is no different. Um, what we have here is we have a national wound. If we're going to think of it like a, a in the spirit, there's a huge national wound on this area. And that's why it's really painful um, to go into this and to talk about it. And, you know, it, it, it's the same thing. When we're talking on a personal level, if I'm just having a conversation with somebody one-on-one, um, I can be really empathetic. I can be compassionate because my goal is to help them through their pain, right? But when we're talking about this subject from on a policy level, we're talking about it big picture. And from that perspective, you, you it can't be a... a a conversation where we are catering to somebody's pain. We have to speak honestly and objectively about what's really happening. And that's why I think so many people get offended because you know people are used to skirting around this issue. Like can you can you say the N-word ever in our culture? No, never, right? Even when you say it as as in a scientific way to talk about the word. I, t- I once took a class actually um, in, in college that was about this word. Like literally the whole class was on this word and you, and the professor would not say the word. You couldn't say it. It's just the N word. And everybody knew what the N word was. But the idea was that the, the word is so imbued with, you know, offensive meaning that to even voice it is inappropriate. Well, that's what we've done with this whole conversation. We've said to even talk about it honestly, scientifically, empirically, objectively, to even take that deep of a look at it is inherently um, offensive to people. And that's why, you know, especially, you know, because I'm not black or I'm not, you know, the thing is, the funny thing is I do identify as a minority actually, right? I identify more as Asian American, right, than, you know, white American. But Asians are kind of on the edge of, you know, intersectionality oppression anyway, right? Like they're not really oppressed, right? But I'm half white. So my white side is like, oh, that's the epitome of evil. You can't talk about any of this stuff. You know, you're, you know, you're an oppressor. And um, so first of all, I don't have, I don't buy into all of that worldview, right? I don't buy into that. I think all of that is, is erroneous, is wrong. And so that's why when I have the, the temerity to speak into this, it's naturally going to rub people the wrong way because they already buy into an entire worldview where from their perspective, I don't have the right to speak on any of this stuff, but that's not my worldview. Okay. My mm-hmm. worldview says that not only do I have the right, I actually have the obligation to speak on this right? I have an obligation. And I think that's ultimately when we're talking about all of these things, we're always coming back to worldview, right? right. And that's a huge reason why um, I'm not afraid to speak on it. I'm not afraid to offend people. In our culture, now to be someone who offends people is to be an oppressor, right? That's right. how this whole thing has evolved now, right? Where language is violence and all this garbage. I don't have that worldview, which is why I, I actually f- feel like it's my obligation and my duty as a minister, as a pastor, as a truth teller, as the light of the world. That's what it means, right? I've heard, you know, you know Isaiah 59, right? Or Isaiah 60, I was mixed up. But, you know, deep darkness covers the earth and the glory of the Lord will alight on his people, right? What is this idea of deep darkness covering the earth? It, that is when deception abounds, right? When deception abounds... His people bring the light. They speak the truth. It's speaking the truth into a context where deception is is powerful in the culture. Mm-hmm. Right? That's my understanding. That's why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. That's what he means, that we speak the truth in areas where people are, are afraid to speak it. So that's you know, that's why I get hate because I'm 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 I don't buy into this worldview. I'm not afraid to offend people. Obviously, I never want to offend people, 
But just like Jesus and the apostles all offended people, I feel like we have to speak into this precisely because it's our duty and obligation to speak truth into areas of mass deception. And I think on this issue, there is so much deception. There's so much deception on this one issue. And, um, you know, let me just give a, a little bit because, look, I went to um, UC Berkeley. I don't say that as a point of pride. I don't care about, you know, college prestige, but everybody knows UC Berkeley is an incredibly liberal school, okay? I received all that training. I studied history and political science at UC Berkeley, okay? I've, I know all about systemic racism. That's literally like the number one thing they basically teach you, you know, if you study those subjects at Berkeley now. And so I've heard the liberal argument. I've, I've studied it in depth, and, but I've also taken the time to study the other side of the argument. And in 95% of my conversations on this issue with other people, I can tell they've only heard one side of the argument. They've never taken the time or the effort to actually consider the other side of the argument. And that, to me, is such a huge problem. That's the big problem in America today is that we've got this hegemony on the left in the universities, in the media, in Hollywood, right? It's all leftist opinion. You're not even given the other side of the argument. You're not even presented with the evidence on the other side. And that's why we have so many people who are informed on this subject, meaning they know statistics and facts and things like this, but they don't really know the other side of the argument. They've never heard the, st the statistics or the facts or the data for the other side of the argument, but they believe this so passionately. Well, that's, how, that's actually what makes you an, a, a bigot. That's how you become a bigot. When you only are informed on one side of the matter and you're so passionate about it, you don't even know the other side of the argument, but you take offense to anybody who would try to present the other side of the argument, that is, that's, a, that's precisely what a bigot is. And that's what our universities are doing. They are producing legions of bigots who are educated on one side of the issue and they've never heard the other side. That, that is, it, it's so destructive. It's the opposite of what the universities are supposed to be doing. They're supposed to educate people, which means you're supposed to teach them the facts and the data on both sides and have the discussions that are difficult to have and expose them to worldviews that they've never heard before. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, and now they do precisely the opposite, which is a tragedy. Mm. Okay, so let's go ahead and unpack what they're uh, contending for or, or what they're trying to fight. They're trying to fight systemic racism in America. Right. And just in general, they want to stop racism. What's so wrong about that? So why are you speaking out against that? Yeah, because there's a, there's a world of difference between racism and systemic racism. Those two things are not, not related, really. Okay? Hmm. Racism... Um, Everybody believes racism is evil, okay? I hate racism, all right? But here's one of the differences, okay? Um, I hate black-on-white racism, okay? That's not, system that's not part of systemic racism, okay? If you try and call out black-on-white racism in our culture, immediately what happens is you're called, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're attacking the victims, right? Why? Because they've actually changed the definition of racism in the universities. They've embraced critical race theory, right? And these other, you know, these are these are 
academic theories that have changed all these definitions. And so now the definition of racism, you know, in the that's used most commonly in the universities is, you know, prejudice plus power. Right? That's the formula. So if you don't have societal power as a group, then your racism, your your prejudice is not powerful. Therefore, it doesn't really matter. The only racism that really matters is the racism of the powerful class, which in this case is defined as the white people, right? It's only the white on black racism that matters. Now, that to me is the opposite of biblical, okay? This idea that God only cares about the sin of these people, and he doesn't care about the sin of these people. Their sin is not that big of a, di- of a deal. You cannot justify that from a biblical perspective. No, God is going to judge everyone. God's going to judge everyone, and we're all going to be held accountable for our own sin. And this is the big problem to me with this idea of systemic racism. What it does is it trains you to only see this certain type of racism and not just trains you to see it, it teaches you to see it everywhere. So anything that could have any of a a multitude of explanations is now racism, right? So every time a white person is a jerk to a black person, he's being racist. When that same white person is a jerk to a white person, he's being a jerk, right? But when he's being a jerk to a black person... He's racist, and it's evidence of systemic racism. Does this make sense? That makes sense, yeah. So the whole idea of systemic racism and critical race theory in general is that that white-on-black on racism exists. It's not trying to prove that it exists. It assumes that it exists, right? Uh-huh. So the idea is we're, we just have to find it. We have to see it. We have to train people to see it. And really what we're doing is we're making people hypersensitive and teaching them to always assume that all of these things are, in fact, racism, which is why I get called racist all the time. What evidence of racism do people have? They have zero evidence that I've ever been racist, okay? They have zero evidence. What they have is a white person speaking and saying things that offend black people or the protectors, the self-avowed protectors of black people and whatnot, right? That's the evidence that I'm a racist. And see, that is not biblical evidence. That's not true evidence, okay? That's not by, if we're going by this, you know, category, you know, at any time a privileged person, you know, offends the feelings of an underprivileged person, well, they're acting in an oppressive manner. That's, that's how the left now defines all these things. And that is, is the formula. That's how, that's how Marxism works. Marxism attempts to put together an aggrieved coalition, right? An aggrieved people who will seize power from, you know, those who are more powerful, something like that, right? That's Marxism in a nutshell. And that's why it's so effective at taking the hurt and the offense and turning it into revolution, right? Turning it into anger and action and activism and all of that kind of stuff. And I think all of that, I think that's evil. I think it's the opposite of what Jesus taught, that we should forgive those who wrong us. Why? Because we ourselves have have committed much more wrong. Yeah. That's yeah. the biblical message, right? We're talking about the, the parable of the unforgiving servant, right? The yeah. servant who fails to forgive another servant who owes him money even though he was forgiven of an even greater debt. And Jesus says, 
the same thing will happen to you if you do not forgive those who sin against you. Then your Heavenly Father will not forgive you of your sins. Why? You are obligated to forgive them because you, if you are in Christ, have been forgiven of a much greater debt. The idea here is that all of us are guilty of great sin. So when we train ourselves to get offended and upset about these sins, right, and we won't forgive them, we refuse forgiveness, right, and that's what a lot of this stuff is doing. It's training people to reject forgiveness, reject the teachings of love those who consider yourselves your enemies, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, right? All of that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's wrong and it's evil. And what it does is it creates demonic strongholds in a culture, right? So Thomas Sowell is a, a brilliant economist at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And most, you know, conservatives who, you know, push back against the idea of systemic racism will quote his work because he's done so much work on a, on a lot of these types of issues, right? And he, um, he has such great material that breaks down a lot of this idea of systemic racism versus real racism. Martin Luther King Jr. was fighting for a colorblind society, right? His dream was for a culture that would not judge a person based on the outward appearance of their skin color, but on the content of their character, all right? That's what I'm fighting for, okay? I am fighting for the dream that Martin Luther King Jr. espoused. But that dream is not the dream of the social warriors, social justice warriors today. Okay? That's not they are they're they are perverting that thing, right? They claim to stand in the in the you know in the spirit of, of MLK, but they do the opposite. They fight for a culture that judges people based on the color of their skin and they refuse to look at the content of their character. They refuse to look at the intended meaning of their words. They refuse to look at whether there's prejudice in their own hearts. They refuse to look at any of that stuff and it's all about is it that person's not black, he can't speak unless you know unless they're espousing leftist, you know, uh ideology. Yeah, yeah. Man, I read this article. Well, I didn't read the whole thing, but just a snippet of it from uh, New York Times, an opinion piece by some ethicist, I forgot his name, like Dr. Harvey or something like that, where they were talking about the COVID vaccine and that how this guy um, is saying that elderly people should not receive the COVID vaccine because majority of elderly people are white. And white people have gotten a leg up on healthcare. So let's go ahead and even out the playing field. Right. Man, that is evil, bro. Yeah. I mean, that, that is so evil. I mean, this is where the social justice kind of, um, um, you know, critical theory has led to. Yes. So, I mean, I tell Christians, yeah. don't use the term social justice. You don't know what yeah. the heck you're talking about. Most, most, most mm-hmm. Christians who use that terminology, they just mean, they're just talking about charity, right? They're just talking about right. helping the poor, you know, doing good for the poor. That's not social justice, okay? Yeah. That terminology, social justice is group justice. It's the idea that there's different social classes and that in the inequality between social class, classes is inherently unjust. That's the idea behind social justice. If yeah. you've got one group that is less well-off than another group, that is a state of injustice. Therefore, when you're helping the poor, 
you're writing the state of societal group justice, right? You have to understand that is not a biblical concept. That's a Marxist concept, okay? That's not a biblical concept. That is a Marxist concept. Why? Jesus says you're going to have the poor with you always. In the age to come, there will be poor people. I know it sounds ridiculous, but there's going to be, that's, we've talked about this before, the idea of rewards, okay? Yeah. Any idea, any system where there's merit, you're going to have people who have less than others. In any free society, you're going to have people who have less than others because we all differ according to our skills and abilities, but also according to our effort. Are there systemic factors involved? Of course there are. There always are, okay? But this idea that poverty always means injustice. That's how you arrive at this idea of social justice. And then what you're willing to do is you're willing to wrong individuals of the privileged class. You're willing to wrong individuals for right. the sake of creating societal group social justice. And that's how you arrive at things like affirmative action, right? Affirmative action, hey, you know, are there going to be some white people who suffer? Yes, but... It's going to write this societal group injustice. And who's the one that ends up, you know, suffering from it? Well, it's mostly Asians, right? Yeah. It's mostly Asians that suffer from it. I think, I think affirmative action is the clearest example of systemic racism in our culture, okay? It's the clearest example of systemic racism. The reason it exists is because Asians, generally speaking, don't complain as much. That's why. Okay, what you have these is you have a lot more movement on the Asian side where they're trying to get people offended over stuff like this, you know, get them offended, you know, <laughs> get it, you know, you're oppressed. All no, no, no. Are you oppressed? Yes, everyone's oppressed. Okay, newsflash. Everyone is oppressed in minor ways. Okay, and now that that is not me trying to say that, you know, wrongs and racism that people have really experienced is of no consequence. Okay, some people have experienced such incredible abuse and wrong, okay? I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm trying to say that Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. In this life, you will have trouble. There is no guarantee of fairness in this life for anybody. And guess what? Even rich people have been seriously wronged in major ways, and they carry the pain of that with them. All right. The reality is this. In America, we are all rich. That's the reality. Even the poorest in America, so the, the, the average you know, poor American is something like 50 times richer than the average poor you know, global citizen. We're about 50 times richer. Our rich people are about 50 times richer on, on average. Right? The reality is if you're living in America, look, our poor people have iPhones. They drive their own cars a lot of times. Right? And, you know, they've got refrigerators and all sorts of stuff, okay? This idea that I'm super poor and oppressed in America, no, you need to understand, no, you're actually very privileged, almost certainly. Almost certainly, if we could see, take a, a, a huge, you know, look at the individual plights of every single person on the earth, almost every American would be on the privileged side of this thing. Right? We're super privileged here in America, and yet I don't downplay the fact that many of us have had serious wrongs, serious abuses, serious betrayals, serious yeah. evils done to us. Okay, And that's real, and that pain 
demands justice, and I understand that. But when you try to shove that into a social justice context, what you end up doing is you create more injustice. That's the problem with this. You create increased injustice, which is why historically our justice system is based off individual justice, the presumption of innocence. An individual, you have to gather evidence. What has this individual done? What, you know, let's look at the actual evidence because we have to judge people on an individual level. And that is a, is a, a far superior f way of doing justice than the idea of social justice where we can judge people based on the color of their skin and have some idea of what they've suffered or what privileges they've had in their lives. What a bunch of garbage. Absolute garbage. Newsflash, they're poor white people. Newsflash, there are abused, sexually abused white people in this world who have had much more terrible lives than many black people. The idea that you, just by the color of your skin, you can know what a person has been through. What a bunch of garbage. And the left has bought into that and tried to push this, this system of justice on us based off this Marxist concept that every time it's been tried before has resulted in even more hardship and misery and devastation and oppression. Every time these concepts have been put into practice, they've made things worse, and it's no different today. Who, who are the ones causing so much trouble in America right now? Who's rioting and looting and all this kind of stuff? It's those who feel aggrieved that they're the victims of injustice. Hey, Newsflash, many people have been victims of serious injustice living today. I, as a pastor, I've counseled so many people who've been abused. But once you take that wrong that's been done to you and you run it through your system and, you, and you're taught to hate the oppressors, I'll tell you what you end up becoming. You end up becoming an oppressor yourself. You end up becoming a terrible person when you filter it through that grievance ideology that is Marxism. It makes you into an embittered, evil person. And Jesus offers the alternative, which is, hey, even though you've been wronged and you've been hurt and you've been wounded, I, am, I suffered for your sake. I committed no sin, but I laid my life down so that you could be forgiven of your sins and healed of your, of your diseases, your heart brokenness. And if you forgive and trust me and learn to walk in my ways, I'll give you peace and joy on the inside. Even if you're oppressed on the outside, even if you're a slave, you can be free in Christ, right? The slave is Christ's free man, and the free man is Christ's slave, according to the New Testament, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Even if he's oppressed by others, if he has Christ on the inside, he can be filled with joy and peace. And then on the day of judgment, he will be recompensed, right? All the wrongs done to him. When he, if he did something right, the God himself will reward that person. So this idea that Christians would buy into this Marxist ideology is, is appalling to me. It's appalling to me because our job is to tell the world, hey, this oppression is momentary. Okay, it just lasts for a short amount of time. So what do we, that's why the gospel is good news to the poor. Because even if you're poor and oppressed in this life, 
If you receive Christ, then you're richer, co-heir with Christ. You'll share rulership with him over, over creation for eternity. This idea that you can be a Christian and yet still claim to be an, a, an oppressed person is, is so ridiculous. No, that's the basis which we warn the oppressors. We warn rich people. What do we warn them? We warn them that their riches are temporary that their power is temporary and that they're going to be judged. So they should not, you know, they should not take comfort in their riches and their power, but in humility they should recognize that they are going to die and that they're going to be judged and their riches don't mean that much and their power doesn't mean that much. That's the Christian gospel. And the and Marxism and social justice ideology it flips it on its head, and it makes it all about the, the riches and the power that we have in this life. And we as Christians, we start to devote ourselves towards helping people, you know, helping poor people or, you know, politically unpowerful people, politically weak people become more politically powerful or something like that. And the whole idea is that that's garbage. The whole biblical idea is those things are small. They don't matter that much in the grand scheme of things, right? Therefore, we should be content even if we suffer oppression. If you can get your freedom, Paul says to slaves, if you can get your freedom, good, do it, right? Of course, if we can end any type of minor oppression, fine, good, do it. But for God's sakes, don't become embittered about the oppression that you face because all people face various forms of oppression, That's really the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is that all humanity is under the oppression of spiritual powers, of spiritual rulers, right? And that's why all the social justice stuff is is a totally different worldview. Okay. I just want to be clear. What you're not saying, though, is do not be apathetic to truly practicing justice, right? I mean, you're not saying don't pursue justice in this world, right? You're giving one perspective that for for those who are facing oppression, right? Don't become embittered. Heaven, heaven is the great equalizer. You know, we will one day, and and as you pursue the kingdom of Christ, we'll wear crowns up there, we'll get our rewards. However, how do we pursue justice here on this earth biblically? Because we are commanded to do that. To yes. truly seek justice. Absolutely. Right? So, so how do we do that? Yeah, so to clarify, judgment is is the secret, right? Mm. God's going to judge everyone according to their works, right? So that's why you don't have to live in despair and in hopelessness and in bitterness of soul, even if you're wronged or you're oppressed, okay? So that's that's the idea. Under no circumstance should you fail to forgive those who have wronged you or fail to rejoice, even though you might be really being wronged by people, okay? I'm not denying that people get wronged. Lots of people get wronged for a variety of reasons, including racism, okay? These are terrible sins. People suffer for them. It sucks. Jesus is coming to put a right to all of it. What I'm arguing against is this idea that you should weaponize your offense, right? That's the idea. Weaponize your offense to seize worldly power or worldly gain. That's the that's the Marxist prescription, and that's what I'm arguing against. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Christians are called to fight against injustice, but the way that we fight is everything. 
Okay, Martin Luther King Jr., he always spoke of building a larger tent of brotherhood. Okay, we're not fighting against the white people. We're fighting for a larger brotherhood of white and black. We're fighting with, right? We're fighting with our white brothers, right? To have a larger table of fellowship together. Okay, we're fighting for that fellowship, right? It's it's an inclusive message of love and Christian unity. That is the exact right way to do it. Okay, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s own time, there was another stream that was arguing something very similar to today's leftists. That was the Black Power movement, right? And characterized by Malcolm X. Malcolm X was not about forgiveness, right, and about bearing with one another and loving one another and brotherly love. He was about seizing power, about you know not being patient, about not forgiving. So this the two streams are the same as the two streams that are going today. Okay. So absolutely, we fight against injustice, but in the right spirit. What's the right spirit? We recognize our battle is not against people. It's not against flesh and blood, right? Our battle is not against people. It's against the spiritual forces that influence them. That's what I mean. It's a different worldview, okay? Marxism is a humanistic worldview. It doesn't believe in a spiritual realm. If you don't believe in a spiritual realm of angels and demons and all of that jazz, right? Yeah. Well, then, yeah, it's just people committing all this evil stuff, yeah. right? But the Christian worldview is different. It's an inherently supernatural worldview, right? We believe that there's an entire spiritual realm and that Jesus died to save us from the oppression of these hostile spiritual powers, right? So... That's the difference of worldview here. So when we're fighting against injustice, I'm not getting flaming pissed, right, at the abortionists, the people, right? I'm not getting flaming mad at the mothers who are killing their own children. And by the way, we could do that, couldn't we? Like, we could get really bitter at them and be like, these child murderers, these evil, wretched people and get really upset and scream at them all day long. We could do that, but that would be entering into the same spirit. Right? We don't do that. What do we do? We fight against this evil by understanding. We we understand these mothers. We understand they're going through hardship. We understand they're confused. We understand that they don't they're tempted to not see the humanity in their babies because it's so inconvenient for them, because it's so difficult and so hard. And in many cases they would have to raise the child on their own. We understand their humanity. And so with compassion and love, we warn them firmly, but with love, hey, you don't realize the wrong that you're doing here. That's exactly the same spirit that Jesus had, right? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that is the human condition, all right? It's not that we're these evil masterminds. It's we're stupid, okay? That's what the Bible says to us. We're stupid people, all right? We don't see all the factors that are going on, we're ignorant of this spiritual realm and what's happening in the spiritual realm. People don't understand they're the pawns of spiritual beings that are manipulating them often, okay? From a Christian worldview, that's the way in which we can forgive people for doing wrong because we understand people are deceived. People don't understand. They're ignorant of the truth, right? So we can forgive them, and at the same time, we can stand and say, what you're doing is wrong. This is wrong, and that's the way that Christians have always contended for justice in the earth, right? And that's the right way to do it. That's the only way that brings good fruit, 
right? The fruit of that type of movement, right? That's the civil rights movement, okay? That's Martin Luther King Jr. That's abolition, right, in the 19th century. That's, you know, even the early feminist movements, right? I think that there was a lot of good in a lot of those movements. So we can contend for justice, but we have to do it out of the right spirit and the right worldview. Got it. Okay. So what would you say to Christians who are genuinely and sincerely trying to fight the injustice of racism here in this country and and who have, um, you know, knowingly or maybe unknowingly fallen into the whole critical race theory um, agenda? What what would you say to them? Yeah. Okay. The the number one thing is, hey, I want to applaud the heart. Okay. Yeah. The the desire for justice is a good thing. All right. But now I need to I need to appeal to you for humility. Right? This idea, what we're doing in our education system is we're telling all these young people, hey, you can you can change the world. Right? News flash. If you're young, you're probably ignorant. Okay, that's the biblical that's the biblical understanding. Okay, the biblical understanding, it says that we should honor those who are older, right? We should honor their wisdom. We should honor their experience. We should recognize when we're younger, we we don't know that much. And that's the thing. All these young people, they're so passionate, but they're stupid, okay? And I say that lovingly because all of us are stupid compared to God. And all of us can get in a place where we, you know, we're speaking with more, you know, um, passion but it's zeal without knowledge scripture warns about this Uh, so the reason why i say that is because at the least you need to be educated in both sides of the argument before you make up your mind and i would i would just contend with young people and i've been you know i've pastored young people for a long time and look i i love young people i'm talking about young adults college students I love them, but they need to have humility that, hey, on this subject, I'm probably only getting one side of the story. If I'm getting all the stuff at, you know, at school, at college, at university, or I'm getting it from the news media, I probably need to put in some effort to learn the other side of the story because a lot of people don't understand this. There's a reason, you know, 97% of, of Ivy League faculty donate to the Democratic Party. 97% of their donations, excuse me, go to the Democratic Party. It's overwhelmingly leftist. And there's a reason for that. The conservatives have been purged out of the universities. Okay, it's not like the conservatives have just decided, hey, you know what? Yeah, we don't really want to teach anymore. <laughs> you know, like, no, they got kicked out. All right, they got kicked out of the universities. And that's because many of the universities became um, activists. They had be- the- many of the professors became activists. The chairs of these departments became activists, and they started kicking out the conservatives. And so what's happened now is we have this orthodoxy of thought in the universities that is brainwashing people. And my first appeal is to say, hey, would you please consider that if all the data and all the stuff that you're getting is from the university and stuff like that, and you've never seriously investigated the other side of the argument, you may not have a balanced perspective on this, right? And that's biblical too, right? The proverb, like one seems right until he's cross-examined. If you just hear the evidence from one side, you won't be able to know the truth. You have to hear the cross-examination. You have to hear the other side of the argument. So that's simply number one, okay? Number two is get educated 
on the other side of the argument. Check out Thomas Sowell. Check out Coleman Hughes. Check out, you know, even Ben Shapiro. It, it, he's going to espouse a lot of, you know, uh, Thomas Sowell stuff, right? Um, Larry Elder. Candace Owens is like the is a big young voice right now who's, you know, they're all repeating the same type of data, okay? And I'll give the basic argument, I'll, I'll give it in a nutshell, okay? You just triggered a whole bunch of people by saying those names, bro. Uh, whatever. <laughs> Stop getting triggered. Forgive, okay? Recognize that I'm maybe, sorry. yeah, going, maybe bro. you've been brainwashed to yeah. think that these people are bigots when really yeah. they're just espousing the other side of the argument and you're taking offense where you should not be taking offense. Yeah. Why would yeah. you take offense at somebody who is trying to make an argument? Okay? Yeah. You should not be offended. I hear people make leftist arguments all the time. I don't get offended at them because I would be a fool to get offended at somebody who's simply making an argument. And people yeah. are saying, if you're getting offended by somebody who's making an argument, you're acting like a fool. All right? Yeah, William Lane Craig used to say that the more you are convinced of the argument and you've studied it and you've looked at the evidence, the less you become offended. You don't get so emotionally uh, uh, moved anymore anytime somebody says anything that's contrary to what you've, you've researched. You know what I'm saying? Of course, so, it's security. I'm it's not security. afraid. I'm not yeah. afraid to look at evidence. Exactly. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's, it's, it speaks of your fear when you can't even look at evidence on the other side. There's something wrong there, right? Yeah. So, Study them. I mean, pay attention to the argument. I, I, again, I'll break down the basic argument. It's not hard to understand, okay? The basic argument is this. Systemic racism is real, okay? It's just, it's it's very small at this point. Like I said, I think affirmative action is the greatest example of systemic racism. But if we're talking like Jim Crow era, there was a lot of systemic racism, okay? Systemic racism is not a made-up concept per se, but it's not powerful, okay? Systemic racism is not very powerful, and that's because if you look historically at the worldwide historical context, systemic racism happens all over the world all the time. And what you see is that it's not very powerful in its global context. So, for example, Jewish people have been systemically oppressed in dozens of cultures all throughout history. And you know what you tend to find? They tend to be amongst the richest, you know, most successful in all of those cultures. Okay, that's not just true for Jewish people. It's also true for East Asians, right? East Asians are the most successful ethnic group in America right now. That's not because they're um, benefiting from white privilege. All right, it's because, it, like I said, I think they're actually suffering from systemic racism, like affirmative action, right? But that's because systemic racism is not that powerful. All right, you see it with ethnic Chinese in Malaysia and in Indonesia. They face a lot of systemic racism, but they tend to be the most successful and um, and the most uh, the wealthiest, right? That's because systemic racism um, is a poor explainer of why ethnic groups do well or do poorly. Okay, what the left has done is try to say it's all about systemic racism. If we just get rid of the systemic racism, then what's going to happen is everyone's going to do equal or some ridiculous stuff like that. No, of course not. That's not how this works. And the, and the answer is because it's cultural values. Cultural values really matter for ethnic groups. Okay, cultural values really matter. And what you see, generally speaking, is you seek two cultural values. If, a, if an ethnic group has a value for family, if they have, have a value for education, they tend to do very well. Those two cultural values are extremely powerful. And this is a totally biblical concept. 
right? This is 100% biblical. Family matters. What you're going to see is that if a child grows up without a, without a parent in a broken family, it's going to be very difficult for them to do well. It, it's, it's so much harder. It's so much harder. I have some basic stats. I'm, let me see if I can find them really quick. Right? Okay. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes. 14 times the average. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Nine times the average. Is that a coincidence? Of course it's not a coincidence. Of course it's not, okay? Fatherlessness is the primary issue that we're dealing with. And in fact, the, the rates track exactly, okay? It tracks exactly. What do I mean by that? If you look at non-marital birth rates in the United States, meaning children who are conceived outside of marriage, according to ethnic groups, okay? What you're going to see is those who, the, the, the ethnic group in America that has the least amount of babies conceived outside of marriages are Asians, Okay, 20%, only 20%, okay? Above that, you have white people, okay? It's about 30%. And, you know, these figures are from, you know, 2015 or so. So they might have shifted a little bit since then, okay? And then you have um, Latino people, right? Latinos are at 50%. And then you have black people. Black people are, are north of 70% at this point. Okay, the vast majority of black children are conceived outside of marriage, all right? 40% of black children grow up with no father in the home at all, okay? It's very difficult to succeed when you don't have a father. Fathers are essential, okay? They provide vision. They provide discipline, all right? Look, there's a difference between men and women, all right? I, I, and I, and I mean this honestly. Women are designed in a way where they tend to be more compassionate, more empathetic, right? More motherly, right? And what do fathers do? Well, fathers, they call out your potential. They say, hey, I see this potential in you, and now I'm calling you to it. Son, I want you to be great, right? Son, I want you to succeed. Son, you, you've got potential inside of you, and I want you to develop it. That's discipline, right? Fathers call their children to discipline, right? And that's so important, so many young people grow up without fathers and they have no they have very little sense of direction in their lives. They don't know what their calling is, they don't know what their purpose is. They've never been called to they have no no sense of they don't feel like anyone believes in them, right? And then they they have no discipline, they have no ability to be disciplined. All right? And I'm speaking in very big generalities because we're we're speaking about general macro trends here, okay? Fatherlessness is the primary issue. And so what you see is that Asians have the least amount of fatherlessness, generally speaking, okay? Blacks have the highest, and what you're gonna see is that the median income in America tracks those rates almost perfectly, okay? Asians have $81,000 median income. Whites have $68,000 median income. Hispanics, $50,000. American, Native Americans, $41,000. And black communities, $40,000 median income. It tracks the, the non-marital birth rate in the United States perfectly, okay? I'm not saying that's the only factor. Of course there are other factors, but that is the most powerful factor by far. 
And that gets into issues of sin. And this is the problem. This is where people get really offended because when you start talking about sin, now you're victim blaming and now you're really causing offense. But I'm saying, look, there are sin issues here. And we can't have a discussion on race in America without having a discussion on sin. And now, you know, this is where even Christian pastors get so upset with me when I'm talking about this. And my rebuttal to this is, hey, hey, this is your job, Christian pastor. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. They they would get upset with you? Yes. Wait, wait, All the time. Why are they upset at you for calling out sin? Because it sounds like you're blaming them. It sounds like you're saying, hey, it's your own problem. If you just fixed it, it's it's you're messing your own life up. And is there a degree of truth in that? Yes, but we need to have a, a nuanced discussion on that, right? Because mm-hmm. we're talking about generational sin. What we need to understand is this. You know, Jason Riley. I remember I read a great article. He summarizes some of Thomas Sowell's you know work on this. But basically, throughout the Jim Crow era, black um, income rates were closing on white income rates very quickly. Okay, black people were actually doing remarkably well. They're improving their status very well during the Jim Crow era. All of that reverses in the 1960s and 70s. Okay, in the 1960s and 70s, it all turns around and the gap starts to widen, and it's been widening ever since. Okay, for the past 50 years or so, it's been widening, and that's that's because not of Jim Crow. It's not that systemic racism got so much worse. Systemic racism got a lot better since the 1960s. Okay, but what's gotten worse? Well, it's those non-marital birth rates. Okay, it's the 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 rate of divorce and broken families, okay? And it's not just in the black community. It's happened in in actually all the communities. Divorce has skyrocketed all over in every ethnic community since the 1960s, but it's hit the black community the worst out of all of them. And, you know, there's lots of good arguments as for why Thomas Sowell argues that, um, you know, grievance ideology, grievance ideology combined with the welfare state where you incentivize broken families, right? You give people more money if they're single rather than being, right? The, the combination of those two had very negative effects in America on the black communities in America, but also in England on, the, on different aggrieved white underclasses, right? So there were white groups in England where the very same trends happen, welfare state combined with grievance ideology, right? And what it does, it creates perpetual poverty, right, in those subcultures, all right, so I'm really just giving the bare bones, because I just want people to understand the basic gist of the argument on the other side, and look, you can dig in, there's so much data, I, I would argue the data strongly favors the conservative argument when you actually look at it, most of the data, when you're coming from the left, is going to be either purposefully misleading, or they're only going to point out evidence of inequality of outcome, Right. So sorry so, to stop you there. But yeah. That's what they'll say about our data. Of course. The data that we're, we're presenting will basically say you can't trust data because it can be skewed, uh, misleading. You know, the whole critical theory thing that data right. coming from the, the oppressors are not right. to be trusted. Also, right. you have a lot of people who have experienced racism, who have experienced oppression that haven't been captured by data. Yes. So how would you respond to that? Yes. Because there are people who have truly experienced oppression. I mean, you mentioned that earlier. We yes. all have experienced oppression, right? Yes. So how do we um, how do we tackle that? What what do we do as Christians to 
uh, pursue justice at this point. Yeah, specifically on on the race issue, I assume you're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's true. Data is only one part of the 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 formula here. Okay, I encourage people to look at data because it's helpful for providing a more objective perspective. Okay, a huge point uh, on the left is that this idea of uh, lived experience. Right, you, If you haven't lived through this particular experience, you have no right to speak on something. I, th that is simply not true. Okay, In fact, it's oftentimes the opposite. Meaning, if you're deeply wounded or hurt by something, are you objective? Of course not. Right? Of course not. If we had a trial and, you know, we, it, you know, it, it was, it was a car accident and this woman was in a car and her baby got killed in the car accident because another guy hit her. Would we let her be the judge of that trial? Of course not, right? Like she's hurt. She wants that other person to die, right? And understandably so, okay? We, you're not objective when you're deeply wounded and hurt, right? So I simply say that, that the data helps give us a more objective perspective. And yes, you are correct in that data can be misleading. It can manipulate at times. That's why I just think it's one piece of the puzzle that can be helpful to give us a more objective perspective. But yeah, it's not everything. There's always going to be an element of faith in any of these things because we're talking about worldview. Okay? Because we're talking about worldview. I would simply say this is, you know, we're a Christian podcast. I assume that most of our listeners are going to be Christian. I would simply say what conforms more to biblical wisdom? What conforms more to biblical wisdom? I, you know, I was saying the job of Christian pastors is to point to sin and the effects of sin and to call for repentance. That's our job, right? Our job is to say, hey, you are sinning, <laughs> okay? Is that because I never sin and I see you sinning and you're always sinning? No, we're saying, look, all of us are broken and we sin and our sin causes us to reap death from our sins, right? That's the idea, that we reap what we sow. And so if we have a sin issue in our life, as a Christian minister, as a leader in the church, we should be able to say, hey, this problem that's going on in your life, this issue, it's caused by this sin. Is that painful to hear a lot of times? Absolutely it is. I'm not saying that we should say that in a calloused manner, Right? Or if I'm talking with somebody one on one, I'm not going to be like, hey, you just sinned. You got this sin issue. Look, yeah. there is a pastoral way in which we talk about these things. But at the end of the day, when we're talking big picture, most of the major issues in our lives have some root of sin or unforgiveness or unhealed pain to deal with. Right? So I simply say, when we're talking about this on a big picture level, right? check let's check our own hearts and i would appeal to many people who are passionate about justice why are you why do you think you're so passionate about justice why do you think that and i would just i would i would lovingly say this for many people it's because they f they're dealing with their own feelings of of being wronged by authority figures in their lives for many people, again, that's not for everyone, okay? But for many, especially young people, they're passionate about justice. I would lovingly tell them, hey, try and understand what is making you so, why do you feel such resonance with this idea of injustice, right? And for many young people, it's because they're unhealed. And this is true. Look, I always tell all Christians need to get inner healing, okay? 
All Christians need to get inner healing because number one, none of us have perfect parents. Okay, all of our parents have wronged us in ways because none of them are Jesus. All right. So we have to go back and consider the weaknesses that our parents had, the ways that they really did hurt us, the ways that they really were negligent, the ways that they really did abandon us. Some of us were abused by parents. Okay, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the pain of it because if we don't deal with it, what happens is we project all the time. Okay, we naturally project onto other people the unhealed pain that we have inside of our hearts. Okay, this is this is one of the rules in inner healing. If you don't deal with your unhealed pain, then what happens is it becomes unrighteous judgment. All right. So to give like a, a, a microcosm of how this works, right? Let's say I'm at church and, you know, I have a friend at church and this friend, you know, lies to me and it becomes an issue and I get really hurt by it. What am I commanded to do? I'm commanded by God to reconcile with that brother or sister, right? Before you bring your gift to the altar, go and be reconciled first, right? But in a lot of churches, that doesn't happen, okay? A lot of times that doesn't happen. If you neglect that command, if you let that unforgiveness fester in your heart, what it will, what will happen is you will start to form unrighteous judgments about that person. It won't be, hey, this person lied to me that one time. It'll be, this person is a liar, right? That's who they are. I start to identify them by the thing that hurt me, right? And then if you keep, if you leave that pain in your heart and it continues to grow, because like bitterness is like a cancer. Unforgiveness is like a cancer. It gets bigger. Now it's all their friends. They're, bu- they're a bunch of liars, right? They're, they're, they're a faction at the church. They're, their group, I don't like them. I don't like their entire group. You're actually, you're the de- divisive person at this point, right? And if you keep going, what will happen is you'll want to leave the church and you'll be like, that church, they're, dude, those Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocritical liars, right? What's happened? You you don't realize, but you rebelled against Jesus' command to reconcile and to forgive those who wronged you. And so what happened? You let your own bitterness get out of control to now where you're making unrighteous judgment, and now you've left, you've left Jesus behind because you hate his bride, right? Scripture says no one can hate their brother or sister and claim right to belong to Jesus. That person is a liar, Right? Why? Because you have to deal with your hurt. You have to deal with your offense. Okay? I'm sorry, the, the kind of a long little mini segment here, but this is actually so, so important. This is why guys like Jordan Peterson are preaching truth to the masses in a, in a non-religious kind of way. Right? What is he saying? Before you try and, you know, help the world, right, and right injustice in the world, go clean your room. Yeah. <laughs> right? What's he in talking? First yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the same principle. It's a biblical principle because our tendency is when we have unhealed w- wounds, we try to fight for others in a noble way, but we don't realize we're actually being motivated by all the unhealed wounds that we have, right? It takes time to become mature. You have to work through all of your own issues, right? Not only that, you have to learn to take personal responsibility because then what happens is you buy into ideologies that will manipulate you with naive idealism, okay? There's a reason why the world is the way that it is, but if you don't understand why it's the way that it is, then you can criticize it because of your lack of understanding, right? You become critical, and that's our young generation today. They're so critical, against capitalism, they're critical against old people, boomers, they speak so disparagingly towards them, and it's the opposite of biblical wisdom where we're supposed to, we're supposed to honor our elders, right? And we're supposed to heed their wisdom, we're supposed to be teachable and learn from them, 
Why? Because the, da the danger for every generation is to disregard the wisdom of the last generation. The wisdom doesn't get passed down, and then this generation destroys itself by its foolishness. Okay, That's exactly what is happening in our generation today. Wow. That was powerful, bro. I'm with you. Now, I, I want to transition a bit to Marxism, but I feel that's going to be an, another hour talk about this because <laughs> I really want to go ahead and get to the heart as to why Marxists, and yeah. uh, they're focused on this whole um, social justice, especially when it comes to race and other things. Uh, why are they so hell-bent and in, in indoctrinating the whole country? Yeah. So I, I, I think we need to have a part two on this because yeah. I, uh, I really want to unpack a lot of those things. Uh, and just in our conversations, I've learned a lot from you. But um, from what you shared so far, man, uh, I can just, I, I, you know, I just want to share the story real quick. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be transparent right now. Here you go. <laughs> so I'm not Korean. Yeah. So uh, uh, my wife is, um, she's Korean. And so when we got engaged, uh, we started talking about what churches to go to. And I came from a very uh, mega church, Calvary Chapel, kind of multi-ethnic church. Uh, she came from a very just Korean church. So um, in the end, she won because, you know, happy wife, happy life. So we decided to go ahead to go to her church. And it was just all Koreans, yeah. right? And, um, uh, you know, I don't even know if you should air this, but I'm going to share it anyways. <laughs> but uh, I noticed that Koreans tend to be very cliquish. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I would stand there and uh, I would say hi to people and no one in the church would come over. Okay, I'm not, not no one, but like majority would just stand there and they would just talk amongst themselves. And I'm just sitting there by myself like, wow, like, and everybody was just hanging out with Koreans. Long story short, I started to get this bitterness a little bit towards the Korean culture. Sure, and I started yeah. to get angry. I was like, man, and I started saying things to her like, oh, man, you Koreans, you Koreans. It's all a joke, you know, but really there was a hurt there. And then I realized like, oh, wow, I've given into her. And I painted every single Korean with the same brush. Yeah. And that's the danger of bitterness. Yeah. That's the danger of being unforgiving. And, and I think that's what's happening in our culture now is that if you have a, a hurt from one particular person or you know, a few from that particular group, you tend to just brush every single, you know, like police officers, every single cop now is racist. Every single white man in, in office is, is racist. Yeah. So I think you touched a very, very uh, important point here on, on forgiveness. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. all of us have, have been through that. You know, like, I had to go through my... You know, the, the funny thing is, you know, people ask me about, like, white privilege and stuff like that. And I tell them, honestly, being white has um, not been a privilege in my life. Now, on some level, of course it is, right? But look, I, I went to a Korean church when I was younger. And I got made fun of and semi-bullied because I didn't understand the culture, right? And that yeah, continued. Yeah. I almost got yeah. fired from a Korean church because I, I kept looking the senior pastor in the eye. I'm like, that's how I show respect in my culture, you know, like, <laughs> but that's disrespectful yeah. in this culture. I don't know. Right. But I'm getting like persecuted for all these, you know, little things. Again, this is very minor persecution. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, 
But I, yeah, all of us, you know, have been hurt by these things. And the thing is, especially when we're talking about father wounds, these are deep wounds, man. Like these are not easy. Most people go their entire lives without getting healed from the from the majority of their father wounds. You know, like these are deep things that seriously affect us in, in, in a deep way. That's why God, by the way, is so strict about sex. Okay, God is not strict about sex because he's a prude and he doesn't want people to have sex. He actually wants the opposite. He wants people to have lots of sex and have lots Amen. of babies, right? But he wants the children to be protected and grow up in a healthy environment, and it requires fidelity on the part of committed parents, right? Yeah. So that's that's why he's so strict about these things. And um, and look, so many people who have grown up in in even for me. You know, I, 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 have, I have a wonderful father, but he's a little emotionally distant, like many fathers are, right? And I had to get get healed from so much of that wound. I didn't even realize that I was wounded in many ways until God started to confront this, you know, just, but, you know, this is, this is relevant. God had to convict me. I always felt like he was distant and he insensitive, right? And I felt like God was, you know? And it's not like I knew he was, I felt like he was. And God convicted me through a series of events, and I realized, oh no, that's the ways that I'm, I was wounded by my father. And I projected those things onto God. And God was like, I'm not like that, right? But I felt like he was. I was always afraid of, you know, of disappointing him and his disapproval, just like many people are who, who struggle with various father wounds, right? The thing is, it's natural. We project our father wounds onto authority figures. Okay, I had this weird thing. It's so weird, right? Like, I was scared of white men for a long time, just very intimidated by them, right? Korean men, for whatever reason, I'm not scared of at all, right? It's really a weird, it's a father wound, right? But like, white men, for whatever reason, it, it just scared me. Something about it reminded me of my dad, right? So, like, these things are deep. They're deep in our psyche, right? And we have to be honest and humble to recognize that these things are coloring the way that we perceive people, right? They color the way that we perceive authorities. And a lot of this stuff in America today is 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 directed at authorities, right? It's like we hate the president, right? And we hate the police, right? And the police are all racist. And systemic racism is all about the racism of authority, the, the bias of authority. And that's why it can be so appealing to young people because they believe it. They're like, yeah, there probably is, right? Yeah. And um, but, but the truth is if you understand all these people, including our own fathers, what you're going to see is you're going to see a mixture of strengths and weaknesses, right? Of real fears that they're dealing with, right? Um, real problems that they have. And when you understand them, it gives you grace to forgive them, right? doesn't mean that they didn't commit serious wrongs a lot of times, but you're able to understand and forgive them and appreciate their strengths. And, you know, just as a side thing for me, I, you know, I grew up going to a Korean church. I went through a period where I freaking hated the Korean church. Right, I I hated the Korean church. I was never gonna go back to Korean church, um, you know. And the Lord called me to pastor at a Korean church, you know. And um, you know, at that point, I'd gotten over most of my anger, you know, and bitterness. But even so, I hadn't developed yet a deep appreciation. Um, but it was actually in the latter part of my life where I worked at a Korean church, and even though you know I was wronged in very minor ways and all those different things, I I developed such an appreciation and a love for the Korean church, right? And, it, you know, if, if you want, if we want to talk about weaknesses in the Korean church, 
I could talk your ear off, right? I know about all <laughs> these weaknesses, right? But I just I just think their strengths yeah. are so incredible. So I, that's a balanced perspective, right? Yeah. A balanced perspective is where I can see the weaknesses really clearly, but I, I, I understand them and yeah. I appreciate the strengths. And that's the way that we're called, right, to see people, right? It's can we see weaknesses and can we say, hey, what you're doing is wrong here? Absolutely. But we also understand why they do those things and we commit to love them and we appreciate the good things that they do and we honor them for the good things that they do. Right. That's that's a healthy perspective to have. Well said, brother. Well said. Yeah. On that note, um, I'm looking forward to our part two because I really want to talk about the Marxist. The the root of all this, which is evil Marxist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. Thanos of, of Mark. Who is it? <laughs> for sure, man. But Dennis, thank you so much, man, for sharing your heart. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Uh, I look forward to our second part to this. And uh, uh, Related Merry Christmas, and I hope you and your family had a great one. And uh, I hope 2021 is going to be awesome. Yeah, me too, man. I hope Corona disappears, all that stuff. So thank you, yeah. brother. Thank you. Love you, bro. Love you too.